What colour is the explosive? things that needs to be said is that I strong-armed I twisted Matt's arm into watching this and then I watched it and as I watched it I thought oh uh-oh because although I like this in fact I like this film a lot I just thought oh you know I'm sorry I made Matt watch this because there's so much to be objected to in it yes there is <laughs> um, I wanted to I... say a bit about the Sweeney TV series do you, do you want to go first though well the thing is there's a lot of I was born in 77. This film came out in 78, but it was made in 77. So it's as old as I am. Um, when I grew up, obviously Sweeney repeats were on TV, but so were The Professionals, Starsky and Hutch. All the cop series were on. And some I liked, some I didn't like. And what I really didn't like about Sweeney 2 was that it was full of the sort of men that I found terrifying. These smoking, they always looked drunk, scruffy-looking... Yeah. guys who were just snarling all the time and even now I can't abide men like that was this when you you just said that Sweeney 2 was full of them did you mean also the Sweeney TV series the Sweeney TV series yeah. is what I mean yeah. it, it was full of them um, so I never really watched the Sweeney and I often get it muddled up with Minder because of Dennis Waterman understandable uh, a series that I also didn't like for the same reasons is that it was these smoking gruff criminal types that just yeah. didn't interest me yeah um so when it came to watching this and the fact that I was watching Sweeney 2, I had no idea if there was a continuing plot going on here. And it doesn't really seem to matter because for something that's been made as a film, I don't fully understand why. There's not enough plot to cover a film. And aside from a quick three-second jaunt to, to Malta. Malta, I don't fully understand where it comes into the scheme of things as a film. Now, in terms of making a film of a TV series, I get that. Because at first I thought, it's weird, why would anyone make a film of the Sweeney? But then I thought, why would anyone make a film of Bless This House? Why would anyone make a film of, you know, Please, On Sir, the buses. Love Thy Neighbour? But, yeah. so I get it. You know, there's probably an audience for it in the cinema. But, yeah, this this was not for me. I'm sorry. There are things I loved. What I loved was the first couple of minutes because it's your bloody area. Oh, I know. And I, I love it too. It's all around Putney and, and Roehampton. Yeah. I knew every... It's the upper Richmond Road and everything. It's I, brilliant. And so it felt I think like that, that opening shot, I looked at that road and I thought, well, hang on, that's down the end of your road. When you drive, <laughs> drive to Andrews. Yeah. And that, that is one reason. I mean, I love it for other reasons, but I certainly love it for that. So this falls in that category of films about a bygone London, which, which are exactly. time capsules. And that was very nice to see. And again, as with uh, From Russia With Love, I started to recognise film studios. So the back of Elstree I recognised straight away, which is the back of the police station, which they never actually go into. Um, yeah. I recognise that car park I very just, well. Because obviously we've got thousands of listeners to the po- this podcast all over the world. Some may not be familiar with the Sweeney, so I just wanted to set a bit of context here. So the Sweeney was a, cop, a hard-hitting cop show from the 70s, and it was produced by a top 
really top British TV company called Euston Films. It was called that because they shot on film and not on tape. And they, I think they actually did make some feature films like this one too, obviously. Uh, so Sweeney, so Sweeney, the word Sweeney is rhyming slang, Sweeney Todd Flying Squad. And I, I'm just going to quickly enlarge on that a bit because back in the days before human beings actually could fly, before we had the technology to fly, the term flying meant to move quickly. So somebody might fly across town or like fly to the window. It just meant to move quickly. So the flying squad was an elite... It's hard to, I, I'm laughing at the word elite because of, of what they, the way they actually turn out. But they were an elite part of the London police force and they were called the flying squad because they had cars they had what we call motor cars and so they could move really quickly but this is back in the days when motor cars were kind of a new thing a novelty just quickly while we're on the subject of cars yes here's something which i just couldn't figure out and it's absolutely important to the film for the first 10 minutes and i, I there was no explanation for it why does john thor need a driver can he not drive <laughs> <laughs> He's probably too pissed to drive. No, I think it's just a, a status thing, I guess. Because at first I thought, okay, maybe he's an alcoholic or something and he's lost his licence. Maybe that's why he can't drive. But there's no explanation given. And it strikes me that it's not that difficult to drive yourself somewhere in London, especially back that, then. No, I mean, I thought that it would be really cool if he was had been struck off or lost his licence for, for yeah. being a drunk. But no, I think just that if you're that kind of senior officer, you have one. Uh, that was my take on it. And the police procedure in this is, I imagine, is pretty sound because that was the, the nature of this TV series is that although the police, I mean, by the standards of today, the professionalism is non-existent. I think it's authentic. Let's put it that way. Right. Now, just again, a bit of background. So this is a show called The Sweeney, Sweeney Todd Flying Squad. It is created by... Again, sorry, did you want to get on? Well, again, uh, Sweeney Todd is... Uh, I always assumed Sweeney Todd was uh, rhyming slang for plod. I didn't realise it was programming slang for uh, flying squad specifically. Yeah, it, it, well, so, we, yeah. We, we can have a big debate about this, but I know I'm right. So, and if I'm wrong, well. which I'm not, you can add a, a, an epilogue to the podcast, which will be fun. But no, Sweeney Todd flying squad. So the Sweeney is this particular elite branch of the London Police. The show was created by a very good, very distinguished British uh, television writer, mostly TV. I don't think he did any movies. Called Ian Kennedy Martin. <laughs> Uh, now, the thing about Ian Kennedy Martin, not to wishing to throw him into the shade, is that he, he is the brother, I think the twin brother, of a, a writer called Troy Kennedy Martin, who is, for my money, an even better writer, like a really top British screenwriter, who did things like Edge of Darkness, uh, Riley Ace of Spies. And I think Ian Kennedy Martin is a, is a really good writer, and Troy Kennedy Martin is a genius. The interesting They're thing about these two is this. that they... Beg your pardon? They're both credited on this. No, uh, Troy Kennedy Martin wrote the script. Ian Kennedy Martin created the show. That's that's the okay. Cr- that's why then. Yeah. So, um, what is interesting about these two brothers is that they created probably the two most memorable and influential police series of all time. In the '60s, Troy Kennedy Martin created a series called Zed Cars. The reason I'm laughing is again, is about cars because Zed Cars meant Zodiac cars because the cops drove. Uh, it's set in Lancaster. Lancashire, um, they they drove Ford Zodiac, so Z cars, and it was a really groundbreaking series because it was gritty and it was realistic. And previously, British police series has been in the vein of something like Dixon of Dot Green, which was just this fantasy world about 
Bob is on the beat, which, yeah, anyway, don't, don't go there. But So Troy Kennedy Martin invented Z cars, and it was this black and white series groundbreaking for the BBC. And then his brother, uh, about 10 years later, created the Sweeney, which in its own way was equally ra- a radical departure, which was shot in colour and on film for ITV by Euston Films. And there was, it was a big hit series, and there was a movie spin-off, which was written by Ian Kennedy Martin. But then they did a sequel, a second movie spin-off, and this one was written by his brother Troy. And I think, I mean, it's a bizarre and wayward film, but I think it, again, is touched by genius in the way that the Ian Kennedy Martin scripts aren't. But we can certainly get to that. So having rabbited it on all about that, I, I watched this as part of my Troy Kennedy Martin season because I, I just rewatched the Blu-ray of Edge of Darkness, which if anybody hasn't seen that, not to be confused with the Mel Gibson movie, which is based on the same material, but isn't very good. They, people should watch Edge of Darkness. So I then watched this, and then I, because we do this podcast, I thought we could do a two-for-one. I could get Matt to watch it too, and then it would be an easy one for me. But I don't think it was an easy one for Matt, so I apologise. It was easy viewing because it was over fairly quickly, and it's nice looking at London in 1977 and also it yeah. is shot very realistically uh location it's, it's not it doesn't there's not much studio stuff at all in this is there well, i don't think there's any studio i, I, I didn't think, think sets so. used on this i, I um, so it's it really is you, what you see is what you get so it's a true uh, if anything it's painfully that way uh very early on when they go to a witness's house and you, the camera can barely get down the hall you think, come on, guys, there must have been a better That's location. That's where, where the, the, the bad guys have run through a house and the police have chased through the house, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's not an ideal location for a, a, the size of cameras they'd have been using at the time. No, no. so there's a cinema verite, um, neorealist kind of style going on here, which I like a lot, sort of documentary well, I style. I think that's probably crediting them with a bit more than they were aiming to achieve. You think it's just low budget? Um, Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, well, I just think it was um, turn up, shoot it, go home. I don't think there was a lot of care gone into what no, they were shooting. No, I, I disagree. I think this was sort of the aesthetic of the show and, and to an extent of Houston films, although they did do much more polished productions too. I think that this was the Sweeney aesthetic and uh, I think it was deliberately like that. I don't think it was accidentally like that. There doesn't seem to be a lot of ambition in the script. The script Can is strange. Explain... It's kind of an inflated... It's sort of an inflated episode of the tv series that's true well okay it seems a little over complicated to me yes in that you've basically got a bunch of robbers who are robbing banks yes i'm fine with that that's enough that is enough motivation robbing banks make money that's fine what i still don't understand is why they leave some money i, I know it's coming and why the whole thing I, I, I mean dennis wartman tried to explain it but it was something about you multiply the dates that they happened with something else and that's the amount of money they take the, so the, the thing about this team of blaggers and it what i particularly loved about this is hearing denim elliott who's this very posh <laughs> british actor saying blaggers now sorry denim elliott was his character in the previous film is that a carry-on no he's he's this is this is totally <clears throat> out of nowhere and unique to this movie Right, so he, it almost feels like he was available and they wrote him in at the last minute because he has no relevance to the plot. Really. Not much at all. So uh, this is... I, I didn't know when to get into this, but, but it's, it's kind of relevant. I believe that Troy Kennedy Martin, who I do regard as a genius, I think that he smoked a lot of weed. I, I, don't, I don't know this for sure, but I think that he might have smoked a lot of weed and um, a lot of his writing, which I love, is informed by a kind of loopy stone sense of humour and a certain degree of eccentricity. Now, I completely... 
apologize if this isn't true to, to the, his heirs and his family. But it does seem to me, if you look at some of his, for another, so I haven't mentioned his most famous film, for instance, The Italian Job. Troy, that's a Troy Kennedy Martin film, and it's a great movie. And Kelly's Heroes, which I think also think is a fantastic movie. That's a very much a stoner kind of film. If you look, if you look at the Donald Sutherland character in that and some of the behavior and plot points in that, which I'm not denigrating, I think it's a great movie, but it just seems to have a certain stoned logic to it. And I feel that that's present in the Sweeney too as well. So what you're basically saying is you can't explain that. Some of it just seems, because... I mean, I don't know the full background. Like why? So Denim Elliott is... Okay, so the setup in the Sweeney is that it's basically about two cops, uh, Dennis Waterman and John Thor. And Dennis Waterman no, no, no. is, is... Not, the, not the Denim Elliott thing. I mean the um, the mathematical reason for the amount of money they take from each robbery. That's okay. Well, I, I will. I, I'm going to. I can get to that relevant. in a second. I can. No, I can. I can explain. Well, you've got to go back to the now. basics to do this. <laughs> but, so, okay. Well, do you want to get to that, or do you want to talk about Denim Elliott first? Well, Denim Elliott's out the window. We know that that was just a. Question of to, him to being available, up, and that's why he's ended up. Okay, so the, the Sweeney is about two cops. The senior cop is John Thor, and I can't, can't remember if he's Reagan or Carter. Can you tell me? They're called Reagan and Carter, which always seemed to me to be a, a, an American politics reference, but I don't know for sure. So John Thor and Dennis Waterman, and uh, Dennis John Thor is the senior cop, and then above him is an even superior officer who, in this movie, he's only ever seen this movie, and he's Denim Elliott, and he gets sent to prison for mm -hmm. corruption. Right. Yes. yes. And before he gets sent away, he says, well, there's one thing I want you to do uh, to, to to John Thor. He says, I want you to take down this firm of blaggers who are these bank robbers. And they're a very professional team of bank robbers. They're like a crack team of bank robbers. They use a sawn-off gold shotgun. Now, this, this also presents certain difficulties because we are told that there was two of these gold, pretty, pretty apparently top shotguns, stolen from uh, a rock star in Scotland, which is kind of cool. Like, he, this, he had these gold shotguns. And uh, they've sawn off one of the shotguns, uh, and they've got one that's not sawn off. And they they lose the unsawn-off shotgun in one of the raids. Then later on, back at their their headquarters in Malta, he takes this unsawn-off gold shotgun and saws off. Like, Hang on, so there's three shot. Anyway, so that's a bit of a discrepancy right there, I thought. But it's the least of our, our worries. Matt was talking about this crazy thing about the amounts of money they steal. So what makes this gang, of, this firm of blaggers, this gang of bank robbers particularly distinctive is that they come to London to do the robberies, then they fly home to Malta, which is this kind of um, Mediterranean uh, tropical island, not tropical, but, you know, sunny, lovely Mediterranean island, where they have this beautiful kind of lifestyle in this it's effectively kind of a hotel complex that they're building. It's got a swimming pool. Uh, it's, uh, and it's this uh, very expensive multi-million dollar complex that they're building. And what they're doing is they're paying for it. They live there with their wives. There's about 10 of these guys to start with, although their numbers are rapidly diminished because they get killed in the course of the film. They're living there and they're paying for it by going over to London and doing regular robberies. And each time they pay off a $100,000 installment on this, uh, this resort that they're building in Malta. And they've got this strange kind of thing that they do that they work out what the exchange rate is on the day, which is usually somewhere around 60 grand in, in pounds. 60,000 pounds equates roughly to $100,000. And they steal money from a bank 
And then if they've got any money over what they need for the $100,000 at the exchange rate of the day, they leave it behind, which is an odd thing. I think it's supposed to speak to the single-minded professionalism of these guys, which also manifests itself in the ruthlessness with, with which they deal with their own members. So if one of their members is wounded or otherwise unable to escape, they just kill him, which I think is quite strong and effective. Leaving the money behind is a bit weirder because... At the end of the movie, they have to go back and do one extra bank robbery because they think they've paid off everything they need for this estate, this uh, resort that they're building, you know, for their life in the sun, their retirement. And it turns out there's some extra charges to be paid. They go back and they have to do one more robbery. And I thought, well, if they didn't throw the extra money away each time, they probably wouldn't have had to go back and do this last robbery. Well, this is part of the problem. And the trouble with this is that you're your main bad guys lose all credibility if, they're, if their actions aren't logical. And I, I'm, I'll accept illogical actions in a killer. Yeah, that makes sense. But when you're planning a bank robbery or something like that, then there has to be a logic to it. And if you can't work out that logic from the film itself, which I really couldn't, um, something's wrong with your plot. I'm not mounting a huge defence. I think there is something wrong with the plot in that instance. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've got to ask you this um, question. <clears throat> What the hell was the movie Rubber is a Natural Resource Recycler? What was that about? I mean, this is part of my problem with this film. You, you know what I was saying about how I hate that kind of man. That sort um, of macho. Here we have this room full of guys who, for some reason, are watching a stag movie. Uh, which um, is supposed because... to be a part of a police briefing, right? Exactly. They have a photo of this woman. That's enough. But instead they sit and watch this five-minute film of her basically crawling all over a, a, a car naked, um, full of all the usual foie and the cloud of smoke and everything else. Yeah. And you think, this, this was shit in 77, well, let alone now. It just, it, 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 don't, two things about that. that film. So what this is, it is, I had no idea. This, apparently this film is supposed to be a promotional film for recycling rubber. Was there ever such a thing? But so what it is, yes. it's this actress, she's in uh, suspenders and a bra, in sort of kinky lingerie, and she's climbing all over this, this vintage car. There's some amusing uh, dialogue from one of the cops who recognizes the car, and he's talking about every, every part is machine as hand tools, and there's some uh, double entendres about that. But the, the point of this is that this woman, who features quite strongly in the plot towards the end, she's involved they believe she's they know that she's involved with the bank robbers and the point of this insofar as there is a point of it matt's right it's fair, it's indefensible but the point of it showing them this film is not just so that they can see who the woman is the idea is that they're going to have to uh put a watch on her keep an eye on her uh stake her out and none of them want to do this but after they see the film of her half naked they all suddenly want to. That's the gag, right? So insofar as there is any gag, that's the gag. And this is part of the problem with the film is that there is there's quite a bit of nudity in this. And all of the nudity just seems gratuitous. Like it's made for children. It's just, it's, it's not gratuitous, it's puerile. Yeah. It's almost like a carry-on film where you get these occasional flashes that just feel like they're there to keep people watching. Well, I felt that about the, the drinking as well. But listen, what I also wanted to say is that this behaviour, which we now regard as reprehensible, uh, it but it remains entirely true, not just to a TV show about cops at the time. I'm sure that, that this was an accurate depiction of the way cops were at the time. I don't doubt that, and I, I get that, and it's 
not necessarily entertaining to watch. That's the other problem. But just in terms of this being a film, I've seen plenty of other cop films from that time which didn't need to have flashes of tits in them. It brings nothing to the plot. It brings nothing to the film. And the only thing I think which did surprise me, which I thought was impressive, was that there was some swearing. Because usually with the programmes like this on TV, the worst you're going to get is git or bloody. But you get some proper outbursts in this film, which makes it far more realistic than the TV counterpart, I would well imagine. There was a bit of salty dialogue, which I remembered. I used to have a DVD of this. I've now got the network Blu-ray, which I I advise people to go out and get, despite all the things that we're saying that are negative about this. It's a beautiful restoration. It looks amazing. Oh, it's great. And it starts, as I said to you in an email, it starts with the... This, the British Board of Film Censors certificate, which is an AA certificate, which is this beautiful blue graphic. It just took me back, nostalgia time. But I, I'd always remembered this line of dialogue from the movie, which is, um, <clears throat> it's a combination of nerves and smoking too much, but it's given me a hard-on like a milk bottle. I thought, <laughs> you don't get dialogue like that these days. So I think it's, I think it is very true to the, the nature of the cop. I think what they did for the Sweeney movie is both the Sweeney movies is that they did what they did in the TV show, but turbocharged it. So hence, there's more nudity, more swearing. But the thing that, and I didn't like the drinking, but I, so no, I kind of did like the drinking because that is exactly the the way that they would behave. Because there's this very minor subplot, like it's a C plot or a D plot or an E plot about somebody threatening to put arsenic in the beer at a brewery. And we never really see much about this, except when the cops come back from the brewery, they're all drunk as skunks because they've had free beer. They're they're literally falling over. And then later on, there's a crazy subplot about a guy who's diffusing a bomb in in a luxury London hotel. And all these cops converge on the hotel and they all just end up having a piss up in the bar. You see, this is another sequence that, again, hammers home how pointless it is to make this a film because it's clearly a TV script that they've padded out to make a film. No uh, well, you know what? You it. might not be wrong about that, Matt. That might be the case, yeah. And the bomb plot is awful. It, you know, if that was what the film was on its own, I'd probably watch that. And if it was the film about the, the robbers, I'd probably watch that. But to crowbar this into the middle of a film with no explanation, suddenly I'm sitting here thinking, because obviously this is Sweeney too, I'm thinking to myself, is this connected to something else yeah, no, I've it's not, not seen it's in another not. film? No. Um, because another thing that really bothered me and I wasn't sure how long the Sweeney had been going on for before this film happened but there is no chemistry at all between John Thor and Dennis Waterman and I thought well, there would be uh, in this movie oddly enough they're almost never on screen together are they they're very no. except in Malta the moments they are they just seem totally disinterested in each other there doesn't seem to be any kind of camaraderie or interplay between them which well, I think that from I, my point like, of view as a new viewer is very strange I haven't I seen this TV series them. for years but I think there must be more than the, more yeah, in the exactly. way of chemistry than that but maybe this was very late in the day. I like your idea of this being an expanded TV script because it has this thing that American TV often does that you have the A plot and the B plot. Like You have the main story and some subplots, and the subplots are yes. dealt with in this really bizarre fashion. Like We have this bomb subplot, which, in which there's... Although Dennis Waterman does go up and join the guy who's defusing the bomb, mostly it's set in the bar with everybody just getting drunk. Now, yeah. in a way, I don't mind that because I think that's very true. I, at the time, British police, this is true, were, especially the Metropolitan Police, were incredibly corrupt, incredibly inefficient, bunch of drunks. So that's, I quite like that insight. But in terms of a plot of screenwriting, it's just very bizarre. And then 
that if you I don't know if you noticed, but the this story is paid off in a throwaway line of dialogue later on with the oh he was with the CIA. I don't know if you even noticed that. No, I don't. I, I think I probably lost interest around that point. I was getting no, much very later in the film the when they when they're back at the office. He says, "Oh, by the way, that bloke was CIA." And I, that, that this is right. not good plot structure. Yet I still think Kennedy Martin is a genius, and I think there's things to be had from this film. As we say, with a plot, b plot, it's fine. I can accept that there would be a subplot, but you would usually go a b a b b a a a b b b a a. You'd do it that way. This is just a b a. Oh, yeah, it's, it's like just kind suddenly, of it's, it's dumped that in. Whole story it's is dumped in from outer space, think, right? And then it's and never referred to, to what again. The relevances. What's the bomb got to do with the robbers? It just becomes. Nothing. It's a very strange movie. to watch. So it's a very strange and uneven movie. But I think at any given moment, I think Kennedy Martin's script's very good, and there are things to be had in it that I, I like a great deal. And there's also things that I found terribly reprehensible. Like I mean, I am in, not even going to defend it on the basis of it being true to the period. But there's a bit where. Dennis Waterman says uh, he's expecting, well, he goes to this school to identify these people who are in the photo and he meets a school teacher. He has this rather good line. She's not being very helpful. She says, I don't like policemen, which I thought was a great yeah. line. But then it turns out, again, this is only presented in dialogue. We never see it, that he's dating her, which is kind of a fun gag because she doesn't like policemen. But in the same breath, he says, oh, I think I'll blow her out because the barmaid's got big knockers. I mean, this is almost verbatim quote, right? Do you know what? And then, at the end of the film, we see that barmaid. Yeah. In fact, first we see her knockers, because we have a shot, which is almost... Yep. I think I counted it 11 minutes, 11 seconds long, <laughs> which is just her tits. So, I, and, it, and a drink being poured, I think. But there's no reason for it to be there, and then it cuts back to her. I mean, she's about 70-odd. Well... The, yeah, she's not with something else she's not a I spring a, chicken and it and the, the, the you know the school teacher is way nicer but although it has to be said at this point Dennis Waterman's character is drunk as is everybody else yes but there's I mean look Waterman's got his choices but this age thing came up yeah with um John Thor uh trying to pull Georgina Hale now that now, that was Georgina okay, to just so now, just just this, freeze frame for a second here uh I mentioned that there's this bomb story at the hotel, which is really weird. And one of the things that goes on is that there's a, a woman who's the switchboard operator and she's listening to the guy who's on the phone. OK, so what's happening is that they've discovered that somebody's dismantling a bomb. We'll later discover he's with the CIA if you listen carefully. And so he's on the phone to Paris getting being instructed how to defuse a bomb. And she is a switchboard operator who's listening in and she can speak French and she's translating. And I thought, isn't that... The woman from The Happiness Patrol, which is uh, a story in a television series called Doctor Who, which Matt and I don't know anything about. And I thought, isn't that that woman from The Happiness Patrol? And it was, wasn't it? It was Georgina Hale. Do you get a bit of a buzz when you realise you've worked with some people who have been in stuff that you're watching from ages ago? I mean, certainly, yeah, they're... they're there's some pretty impressive people that were in the series when you were working on it who did some incredible things a long time ago. I thought the thing about Georgina Hill is I thought she was great in this and in many ways better than she is in The Happiness... She, she's, it's a better performance than in The Happiness Patrol, do you think? Well, yeah, but I don't think she would have been particularly pleased about doing Happiness Patrol, not in the role she was in. Was, was she the one that complained that she was too young and Nathan Turner got around it by saying, oh, darling, you can't play that old? I, 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 look, like, I, we, need this, we need to have a Happiness Patrol podcast, but this is Georgina yeah. Hale. She was in the Happiness Patrol, which is a Doctor Who story that I, I worked on. And also she now, did a lot of work with Ken Russell, I believe. Quite probably. I, I don't recall her in any Ken Russell films, but I... I don't always recognise people. And she's got this kind of comic subplot where John Thor 
who's who's a terrific British actor, but in this he's just playing a sexist brute, right? Basically. Well, my problem was was that he was coming on to her and he was trying to pull her and he succeeds. Yeah. Not that he knows, but he succeeds. And I was getting furious because I'm thinking, this guy's like twice her age. What is going on here? Well, never mind twice her age. He's utterly boorish, correct? Right, Andrew, I looked it up. They're the same age. John Thor was 35 when he made this film. My God, he looks old. Yes, he looks fucking terrible. He looks older than me. I mean, but he's even got that thing where he's got those those eyebrows that you only get when you're like 90 years old. You're like the bushy eyebrows. He looks really old. What life did he lead? Because I was astonished. Yeah. I, I really was, because I, I put her in her 20s, but she's 35. Yeah. And I'd put him easily in his 50s, yeah. uh, late 40s. And how old um, was he? They're both 35. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. But, and the thing about, <laughs> the odd thing about John Thor's performance in this is that he's a really good, talented, subtle actor, and he's basically playing a Neanderthal cop and playing it so well that one would never know that he was capable of more than that. I can't think that I've seen John Thor in much else. I probably watched an episode of Morse once, but it was never my cup of tea. So yeah. I don't know if he's a good actor or not, because based on this, I'm not massively impressed. So I might have to seek some other but, things but, out oh, with him. In. Oh, actually, no, he's in a, he's in Doctor Fives. Just, uh, he's in Fives yeah. Rises again, isn't he? He, yeah. I, is he? This so we must watch else. that. Is he good in that? All right. Gets his eye pecked out by a crow, if memory serves. <laughs> I love this podcast. But also, again, a Doctor Who reference. Um, he was married to... Uh, yeah, yeah, to uh, Helen uh, and Or better known as... I'm trying to Sheila remember. Hancock. Hancock. Right, yes. who, who again was in The Happiness Patrol. So that's another interesting connection. Now, he, Sheila Hancock's a bloody good actress. I've always liked yeah, her. No, but John Thor was a marvellous actor who died far too young. But in this, he, he already looks about, as Matt says, a, a rough late 50s. Um, I think I may have mentioned this once before, but a friend of mine, uh, Steve, I'll give him his, his name check, he's always gone on about wanting to start an extras agency for film and TV that he wants to call Concerned Faces. Because he said that's basically all extras ever do. They just have to look concerned in the background. And it just came running back to me when I was watching this with the wives in Malta. Oh, that's interesting. Not one of them has a speaking part, but they all constantly look concerned. They they, they do (laughs) have a speaking part, especially towards the end. Um, One of them does. Well, so this thing about the Malta is a strange kind of hippie colony that they've got going. Because they've... I mean, and they have some really odd speeches where they say that we think Britain is, is over, Britain is dead and all this stuff and they, they've mm. relocated to Malta, these bank robbers and their wives and their children and in the course of the movie all of the bank robbers get killed, all of them so the wives are left owning this kind of palatial luxury estate in Malta and in their last will and testament which is presented as a voiceover from the chief bank robber it, it goes on about how the wives are all going to inherit this place and they want them to keep it up and fulfill the dream. And the wives immediately vote just to sell the place, which I like. Yeah. I thought that was a nice twist. Yeah, wives are always far more practical about these things. Well, um, it's, it's true. And in fact, also one I of the... suspect they don't like living with each other. The impression I get is that they're not particularly happy about the living arrangements, but the guys love living together in this little... Strange kind of um, almost hippieish com- commune, almost. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, bit, a little bit culty. It is a, a bit culty. Well put. And the chief bank robber, his wife actually 
phones the cops to say that she informs on him. She sets him up for it to get done. Yeah, you see, again, I thought that was that she was informing on him as part of their last plan, but uh, it wasn't even that complicated. No, she. I think she just... Because th- we see him flandering with the woman from the Recycle Rubber film. Uh, and we do, but I thought that she was doing that because there's about three decoys that they set up, and I thought she was one of the decoys in that they're pointing them towards the decoys. That's how they knew that there was going to be the robbery. Otherwise, they wouldn't need the decoys. It is all a bit convoluted, but I think she genuinely wanted to get rid of her husband, so she, she set him up. Hmm. I find that that sequence in the end when they close in on them in the hotel I thought that was really gripping uh, and very effectively Um, shot it was surprising Um, I certainly wasn't expecting a head to get blown off yeah I Um, I, you know there's a lot of kind of stark brutality and and if you remember that the initial car chase and robberies and things I think they're really well carried off it has a, a seedy kind of reality to it I found very gripping and I wanted to mention you were talking about it being shot in very claustrophobic uh, terms in a house. And what that sequence, the way, where that comes about is that the bank robbers have been, the cops have set up a roadblock and, the, and had a shootout with the bank robbers and it's carried on through this house. But this is a classic Troy Kennedy Martin thing, which he does again in Edge of Darkness, where instead of seeing the sequence... Uh, th- this big shootout, you come in, in and see the aftermath of the shootout, which is really brilliant. So you see the smashed cars, you see the dead bodies, you see the, the wreckage afterwards. And they do exactly that in with a sequence involving Joe Don Baker as Jedberg in, in uh, Edge of Darkness. And I, I think it's tremendously effective, and it's also a lot cheaper than, than doing the shootout. But the other thing about that, this roadblocks, it's gone badly wrong because... The bad guys have taken a woman from the bank hostage with them and she she gets killed in the car crash, doesn't she? She ends up in hospital and eventually dying. And that, that whole thing about how badly things go wrong and how badly handled it was by the cops and how unprofessional it is, I, I kind of like that about this movie. And while I would agree that the ending is effective and it's, it comes out of nowhere, I think it's quite a violent ending. I like that they don't hang around for a big shootout and they don't hang around with a big sort of, you know, try and talk them down. It's over bloody fast. Yeah. It's grisly, it's unpleasant. And then we end on a song and dance within this a few minutes. This is the weirdest thing ever. So we mentioned the big <laughs> knocker barmaid scene. I'm sorry to put it like that, but that's absolutely the way it's framed. We're, we're it? talking within the context of the film here. Yeah. I mean, this is basically yeah. women do not come out of this film well at all. No, although Georgina Hale stands her ground very effectively, I thought. She was still going to shag John Thor. I know. Come on, love, have some standards. <laughs> well, no, 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 that's not true. She was going to shag John Thor's character, which, you know, quite a different thing. John Thor is a terrific actor, and, you know, I'm sure that any woman <laughs> would be proud to be associated with him. The man himself, not the character. So, so this, what happens in this bar is that there's this kind of Irish fiddler playing, and then yeah. John Thor takes off his jacket and begins to do this crazy dance, and then we freeze frame on him. It's the weirdest ending ever. It wasn't comfortable at all because it, it suggests that any intent they had with the scenes before that, you know, if they thought, okay, here we go, this is going to be dark, this is going to be gritty. That all goes out the window. I don't give them any credibility for that because they knew they were going to end on this. And it's such a... I think... Okay, maybe you... I think your argument is probably going to be that, okay, cops just turn it off, you know, once they've... Once the crime's done, they've got to let 
lose some steam and they and they've just got to put it out of their minds. Yeah. I don't accept that because well, that's not what's made clear here. All that's we get is a not my argument. My argument is that I think there probably was a different ending, and they just thought, oh. We, we've lost we've lost the other scene we could just freeze frame on it on him here because that's what it felt like it felt like yeah it came out of nowhere and they got away with it well and they obviously didn't with you and i thought it was really weird too and the other thing is that the reason he's he's already started dancing but the reason he begins to dance maniacally is he sees that georgina hale whom he never expected to see again has actually turned up at the pub and he realizes that he's going to take her home that night. So he's like, he's really happy. And they freeze frame on it. And it's nuts. It's utterly, utterly nuts. The weird thing is, yes. I, I was thinking about this, a lot of the films made of TV programmes around that time, especially the sitcoms on, they almost all end with a song and dance. And so you think it, it might just... actually be part of that tradition? That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe. But, but it just doesn't fit the film at I all. I kind of feel that we should... I, I won't subject you to this, but I kind of feel we should watch the first Sweeney movie because no. I am sure that it's going to be much more coherent and well-organized than this, But because it's by Ian Kennedy Martin. But I, I, for all of that, I think that for all its craziness and the fact that it doesn't make sense and that it's so eccentric, I still think, as I said, that Troy Kennedy Martin is touched by genius in a way that his brother isn't. And, and even this movie, which is weird in many ways, is touched by genius in, in a way that, that I, I'm willing to bet the first Sweeney movie isn't. Which Kennedy Martin did Chinese Detective? Again, Ian Kennedy Martin, yeah. See, I like that series. Well, no, they're both really good writers, and I don't want you to judge Troy on the basis of this. Uh, have you seen any of his other works that I've mentioned? Italian Job, Kelly's Heroes, yeah, obviously I've Edge seen of Italian Darkness. Job, Kelly's Heroes, yeah, yeah. Edge of Darkness I never really got on with, but I think it was very much a product of its time, and I don't think it ages well. Which one is that? Edge of Darkness. Oh, well, I know I, I, you're wrong about that. I've just watched it again and it hasn't dated by five minutes. Well, I'm right about it. I didn't like it. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, did you ever see Riley Ace of Spies? It's another of his. Yeah, I gave it a go. Um, I like Sam Neill, but uh, again, it, it it did nothing for me. That was a mix of uh, videotape and film, though, wasn't it? And that's always a... Oh, no, I think that's entirely... I think that's used in films that and film it's entirely series? on film. I don't think there's a, a, a scrap. Riley Ace of Spies, that was late 80s, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, but it's, there's no videotape whatsoever in that. I'm willing to wager. Okay, maybe I'm thinking something else. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, well, Italian jobs. Look, right. look, you've been a really good sport to watch this because I knew I, after I'd cajoled you into it and watched it, I thought, oh shit. <laughs> like I say, it's not it, it's not difficult to watch. Yeah, it's not like it just enrages you. It's more fascinating to see a writer just absolutely go off the reservation like this yeah <laughs> um and again just looking at london was enough, yeah you know i want to stress that how what a this is a really gritty propulsive documentary style so even when the, the weirdest most ludicrous things are happening it's shot in a very compelling way well, I'd, I'd say it was shot in a very pedestrian way. There was one shot that was okay, which was a, a quite nice shot of a, a muzzle of a shotgun. But that, the rest of it was just point and click. There was very little effort going in. Well, I don't know much about the director. I think, was it Tom Clegg? Or anyway. Yeah. He is Tom Clegg. Yeah. I looked him up. He's just done telly. Yeah, I, I assume he's a Sweeney director. From Sweeney. I'm going to yeah. have to watch the first Sweeney to sort of contextualise this. But again, Troy Kennedy Martin one of the great screenwriters and I, I wish I'd, I'd met the man uh, and indeed if he find out if he did smoke a lot of weed because it certainly <laughs> seems that way I don't know at all uh, so forgive me if I've got that wrong 
Thank, big thanks to Matt for watching this because he's been a really good sport about this. And I would I'd recommend this movie because, as he says, it's an easy watch. But I wouldn't I certainly wouldn't recommend it as the only or even the first Troy Kennedy Martin you watch. You should certainly check out some of his other films before you do this. But uh, a great British screenwriter and a, an interesting, very weird addition to his canon. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Anyone know who he is? No, sir. Regan? Have a gin, sir.